You're listening to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast, episode number 29. Hey guys, hope everybody is doing good out there. This week, I have an expert interview for you guys. My friend Marta Perez, Dr. Perez, came on. She is an OBGYN from Jacksonville, Florida, and she answered some really awesome questions, (laughs) some questions that I could not answer. We talked about preconception visits whether they're necessary, and what exactly one uh, entails. And then we talked about genetic screenings. I had a lot of questions about that. That is something that is uh, almost foreign to me. Um, So I can't give like great advice on it. So I'm glad she was able to come on and explain about genetic testing, the pros and the cons and how invasive and all that good stuff. We talked about high risk pregnancies, why we do NSTs, inductions, how um, obstetricians are trained, and how you can find a provider who you can trust. It was a really great episode full of lots of great information. If you are currently pregnant or currently trying to get pregnant, definitely tune in. Side note, how is it already May, you guys? I was doing my calculations. I was just like calculating and I only have three months until this baby is born. Like that is blowing my mind that I'm already six months, almost seven months pregnant. And yeah, It's the beginning of May. I'm due August 1st. So that is three months. And who knows if I go into labor at 37 or 38 or 39 weeks. I don't know. Um, So yeah, it just kind of like caught up with me all of a sudden. And it was like a reality check. So yeah, side note, I can't believe I'm um, already almost 28 weeks, 27 weeks pregnant. All right, let's get into today's episode. You're listening to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast, where we firmly believe in the power of education when it comes to giving birth. Tune in each week as we dive into pregnancy-related topics, expert interviews, and a variety of birth stories. As a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast is not medical advice. Please see mommylabornurse.com slash disclaimer for more details. And now, here's your host, educator, registered nurse, and fellow mom, Liesl Teen. This episode of the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast was brought to you by Walter. So if you guys have been following me for a long time, we have played this game on my Instagram before, but Walter is not on, uh, Walter does not show his face on my Instagram very much anymore. So we figured we would play it here on the podcast. Are you ready to say some words? Yeah. We're going to say some labor and delivery related words. Are you ready, bud? Yeah. Okay. Ready? Yeah. Okay. Obstetrician. <laughs> hey, I, I like you. You're my best friend. Okay. Okay, you ready to say the words? You got to repeat what mommy says, okay? Okay. Obstetrician. Obstetrician. Very good. Genetic screening. <laughs> the, the, the genetic screening. Very good. Induction. Induction. Midwife. Midwife. Very good. Non-stress test. Non-stress test. Ooh, good job. Prenatal vitamins. Prenatal vitamins. Good. Ooh, this is a hard one. Gestational diabetes. 
snake with no bite teeth. Oh, not bad. All right, ready? Preeclampsia. Preeclampsia. <laughs> Good. Placenta previa. Placenta previa. Okay, not bad. Labor and delivery. Labor and delivery. Oh, good. Good one. Postpartum. Postpartum. Good. Cephalopel... Oh, this one's real hard. Mommy can barely say this word. Cephalopelvic disproportion. Cephalopelvic disproportion. It kind of sounds like porcupine, doesn't it? <laughs> All right, you ready? Yeah. Cesarean section. Cesarean section. Amniotic fluid. Amniotic fluid. Good. Breach presentation. Breach presentation. Oh, good job. Okay, we got two more. Maconium. Maconium. Good. You ready for the last one? Time for delivery. Time for delivery. Yay. Okay, say bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Hi, Marta. Welcome to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Liesl, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Can you just start by telling listeners just a little bit about yourself and your family, where you're from, what you do, all of that good stuff? Absolutely. So my name is Dr. Marta Perez. I am a general obstetrician gynecologist or OBGYN in private practice in Jacksonville, Florida. Awesome. I grew up here. It's Northeast Florida on the Atlantic coast. Um, and then I went to Georgetown University in Washington, DC for undergrad. I went to Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee for medical school, mm -hmm. and then I completed four years of OBGYN residency training at WashU in St. Louis, which is also associated with Barnes Jewish Hospital, which is a huge, big teaching hospital, cool. um, and then I moved back home to do my private practice. Awesome. So you've been everywhere, been all over the place. <laughs> I know. It's been, it's been a journey, and then, of course... Um, much of that time, I mean, I had a relationship, but I've been single. And then of course, after I took my job back home, I started dating my now fiance, but he's uh -huh. still in St. Louis because he's in training to be a pediatric cardiologist. Cool. So awesome. now I'm back and forth all the time. Yeah, I'm sure. Busy, busy, right? Um, all the time. I feel like I, so I work with, obviously I work with doctors, but I feel like I heard a statistic and maybe this was, no, maybe it wasn't you. Maybe it was another, uh, I don't know who it was, but it was like a post on Instagram that said something about dating and married to doctors and how it's like so like such a high statistic that like doctors are married to doctors. Oh yeah. I feel like, I mean, you just spend so much time in school and studying and as yeah. you go along, it's like pre-med classes. Well, I had a lot of friends that weren't pre-med, but then you're in medical school and that's like a lot of your social yeah. network. And no, then, it, it makes so much sense. Yeah. And so, and it's like 50, 50, or maybe even 51% female now. So it's like pretty good mm -hmm. ratios. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. And I mean, gosh, like how long do you, are you even in, like, you're just in school for so long. And that's, you know, generally like the ages of when people are looking for, uh, you know, somebody to marry. So it, I mean, it totally makes sense. I didn't put two and two together until I saw that post. Cause I just, I don't know. I didn't think, but I was like, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. <laughs> You know what else is funny too is OBGYN specifically is very much becoming a female dominated doctor mm -hmm. specialty. Mm -hmm. So it used to be male dominated. 
it went to about 50-50. At this point, training programs are something like 80% female. Mm. So in residency, when I wasn't dating anyone, someone would ask me about, oh, like find another, you know, cute doctor in the hospital. And I'd be like, well, almost all of my co-residents are female <laughs> or, or they're male and they're married. Um, all of my patients are female. And then as you know, it's mm-hmm. uncommon to have a labor and delivery nurse that's male. Right. Very um, uncommon. Very uncommon. Very yes. uncommon. In the ICU, the ER, lots of male nurses, but yeah. very, very uncommon. So I was like, I really don't see them then. <laughs> The partners of my patients, that's pretty much it. They're taken, they're spoken for. Right, right. That is too funny. Okay, well, side note, start talking about dating. <laughs> Let's yes. get into the, the real bulk of the episode, what we're going to be talking about today, guys. So as you guys know, we just talked about it. Marta is an OB, GYN, so we're going to be talking about you know pregnancy and gosh, I have a little list of questions, preconception stuff. And yeah, we have like a lot of, a lot of different kind of topics. So, um, we're doing like a expert takeover today or expert interview today because, you know, I I can say I'm a, I'm a nurse. I have nursing specialties, but you know, there's a lot of stuff that I have no idea. I, I don't know into detail. So I love to do these expert, um, interviews with people who have like you know, a lot of knowledge that I don't have. So, so we're just going to jump right into it. I kind of took, I know you sent me an email a while back just of topics. So I kind of took those topics um, that Marta and I were talking about via email. And these are some of the same questions that you guys bring up all the time in my Q&A boxes. So I think it's going to provide a lot of value, a lot of good information. So let's get into the first question, kind of go, I guess I kind of went in order of the ones that I I picked. Um, So this first question is, let's talk about preconception visits. Are they necessary? What exactly does one entail when somebody is going, you know, should we even do them if we're thinking about conceiving? Yeah. And I love this topic because um, a lot of women I have found don't really know about a preconception visit. And so I love talking about it and raising awareness. Um, so as far as, is it necessary? Well, obviously not tons of pregnancies are unintended or, you know, you intended to have a preconception visit, got pregnant a little earlier than you thought that's fine too. Mm -hmm. Um, but it is a really nice time to go see the doctor. I recommend it about three to four months or even up to six months before you're planning to start trying to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. And there's a few main reasons why and things that I talk about in a preconception visit. So one of the first easy, most simple things is giving guidance on when to stop contraception. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of patients think, and I, we see a lot of this on social media, it doesn't have any scientific backing saying, oh, you'll need to cleanse your body from your contraceptive method before pregnancy. And there's just no, absolutely no data that there needs to be any lead time from stopping contraception to getting pregnant. And most, not all, but almost, almost all but the shot forms of birth control will stop preventing pregnancy when you stop using them immediately. The shot can have a little bit of a few week lag depending on the person, mm-hmm. um, may or may not. Um, but everything else, it's going to kind of stop being effective immediately. What else I can do, and I usually kind of save this for the very end of the discussion, I'll just touch on it right now, is I like to tell the patient, well, what if you haven't gotten pregnant? When is it abnormal? And so I'll I'll circle Mm -hmm. back to that in a minute um, because some patients will reach out and say, it's been three menstrual cycles and I'm not pregnant. Do I have infertility? And the answer to that is definitely not. No, absolutely. Sometimes it feels that way, but it's it's not, right? Absolutely. Especially for women who have been really 
planning this type of thing and plan out their lives. They detailly plan their career and their weeks and their days right. um, to plan, to not be able to just achieve a pregnancy. The first cycle can be really upsetting. And I, I understand that as someone who is very type A too. So, but it's important to know before you even start trying what's normal and what's abnormal. Um, so that's a really important part. The other important part is there's just, just some basic ways we can sort of avoid some problems that might come out come up in pregnancy if we try to prepare for them before. So talking about medical history, medications that you're on that may need to be changed, um, other um, things in your family history, et cetera. Specifically for medical history, I talk about there's two different viruses that if your body is not immune to them before pregnancy Mm -hmm. and you get them for the first time during your pregnancy, they can have some negative outcomes on the pregnancy, like miscarriage um, or some birth defects or stillbirth. Now that's very, it's very rare, but if you yeah. could plan to avoid it, why not? Right. Um, and so those two are varicella, which is commonly known as chicken pox. Mm-hmm. In our generation that we're at right now, there's kind of a split between people who had actually had chicken pox and maybe even went to chicken pox parties. Everyone got the disease, got it over with. They're generally immune. And then some people who were able to prevent the disease via vaccination, but sometimes our immunity wanes over time from that vaccination from childhood. Yeah, so you're exactly right. Yeah, you're exactly yeah. right. Like, cause my sister, my, I, um, I'm 30 and my sister, like my sister and I have seven years apart. So she's 23 and she got the vaccine when she was younger and I didn't like, I got chicken pox. So yeah, you're right. It's like, we're we're getting to where everybody's kind of had the vaccine, but it's not, you know, we're not quite there yet. (laughs) We're not quite there yet. And I see kind of half. So what I'll typically do is instead of drawing that blood test, I'll just ask, did you have chicken pox? And if someone says no, or they're not sure I'll test it. But if someone says, Oh yeah, I remember it. Yeah. You're probably immune. I do. Um, I I was old enough to remember like, well, barely. I mean, I, I remember the the little pink uh, solution stuff that I would put on the bites. And I think I was in kindergarten. So I mean, I don't exactly remember, but I, I do. When I was asked that question, I said, yep. Oh yeah. I had chicken pox. It's, it's a memorable childhood illness for yes. sure. Yes, for sure. <laughs> um, and then rubella is the other one. It's called German measles. Not very memorable. So most people wouldn't remember if they had it. Um, and you know, at our age, most people were vaccinated for it because it was before some of the anti-vaccine movement started, right. but testing for rubella can be really helpful because you can get the varicella chickenpox vaccine or the rubella vaccine before pregnancy to, to make yourself immune before you enter it. So you don't obtain it for the first time without immunity during pregnancy. Gotcha. Um, and the lead time for those is we recommend having pregnancy about a month after getting those vaccines. So okay. again, it's more of a precaution. It's really not the end of the world. If you get the vaccine and then you get pregnant two weeks later, it's more theoretical, but it's because those vaccines are live. So whereas the vaccines that doctors will recommend in pregnancy mm-hmm. are completely safe in pregnancy. And I have no doubts about that. Um, there are some types of vaccines that we just don't recommend in pregnancy because they're what's called live attenuated, meaning there's parts of the actual virus. So those are two of them that you can get before pregnancy, but we wouldn't give in pregnancy. And they usually are given, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is what I always give my postpartum nurse when I tell her report, yes. they, they can give, be given, you know, on a, in postpartum, like if you're not Absolutely. immune to them. So absolutely. Yeah. And there's no concerns about breastfeeding. Yeah. Yeah. 
Cool. So that's a good time. Sometimes if we miss someone in that preconception, we can give it to them postpartum in anticipation of their next pregnancy. And that's good to know about pre- preconception as well, that time frame, because I think that's a lot of people, I think that's concerning for people with these vaccines. It's like, oh, I think, I, you know, if I get a vaccine, I've got to wait three months or something that seems so long, but it's like a month. You're like, oh, that's not that long. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Cool. And the one other thing is always, I mean, everyone should be getting the flu shot. So it could be right. another opportunity to access care for the flu shot at a preconception visit. So that's kind of the infectious um, side. And then I always discuss what's called, and we'll talk more about when we say genetic screening or genetic testing. Wow. That's like opening a big can of worms. And it's really confusing for people, all the different things we refer to. Yeah. Um, Because you have everything from prenatal genetic testing and genetic screening, which I know we're going to talk about during pregnancy where you're thinking about the baby. Mm -hmm. And then you have you know, things like 23andMe or, oh, my mom got tested for a breast cancer genetic screening Mm -hmm. test. There's all these different things that we talk about. So, you know, it's in our society right now, we're just booming with the availability of genetic things that can be screened for. And of course, some disorders don't relate to genetics. Some are absolutely a black and white genetic picture. You have the gene, you have it. You don't Mm -hmm. have the gene, you don't. And others are somewhere in between, meaning that's multifactorial, et cetera. At this point, we're not recommending that everyone in the population, including preconception women, have a full genetic screening. But there are some relatively common things called carrier genetic screening tests. So a carrier test, I'm going to use just a common one, which is cystic fibrosis. Okay. Um, but, But people's and all people should be tested for cystic fibrosis carrier status. There are some other ones that depending on your ethnicity or your race, your doctor may also recommend, but one of the really um, most common ones is cystic fibrosis. So I'm going to talk about that for a second. Yeah. So if you have a carrier gene for cystic fibrosis, it means that you don't have the disease yourself, but you carry the gene and it's recessive. So it only becomes a problem if your partner is also a carrier and then you remember those Punnett squares from high school biology. Oh, yeah. There's a 25% chance that your baby could be affected. Mm. Um, and so a common one is um, cystic fibrosis, fragile X disease, which is a little bit different in how it's inherited. It's linked on the X chromosome. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some spinal muscular diseases. And then depending on your own history, et cetera, and your ethnicity and that kind of thing, your doctor may recommend more. But it is an opportunity to screen for those issues. Usually, you know, if one comes back positive, we'll then test the partner. If the mm-hmm. partner's also positive, there are there didn't used to be too many options except waiting and seeing. However, now there's options like doing in vitro fertilization and testing the embryos before they get implanted. Mm-hmm. So it could be an area. But even just knowing kind of knowledge is power in terms yeah. of um, having those results. So it's a great time for the, that introducing that kind of testing too, if someone's interested in it. That's that's good to know. Very good to know. And I, you know what? I just thought of a question that I this might be a dumb question, but like if you are, so let's say you want to, you know, you have a preconception visit or even this is genetic testing during pregnancy and they want to test your partner too. Um, do most OBs or, you know, OBGYN offices, do they test your partner there as well? Or how does that work? Because it's, I mean, generally OBs don't have male male patients. So how does that work? Do you, do you send them to LabCorp or something? (laughs) Yeah. So we can't for a variety of different reasons, um, for male partners, we can register them in our system and 
um, test and treat them for a few different things. Like I'll order a semen analysis and an infertility gotcha. workup. We just create a chart for him. Or sometimes like these situations as well, when we want the males genetic, there are other reasons we want um, <laughs> genotypes from men as well gotcha. um, for things we pick up during pregnancy. Um, so yeah, we can, we can add them usually to our system and do it. And then other times too, if a, if a, you know, a partner has an established relationship with a primary care provider, we could refer to them as so well. Send but, them. Makes sense. Yeah, but a lot of time we can do it through our office. We'll just register them as a patient um, and order the test for them as well. Good to know. Good to know. Cool. Well, all of that was <laughs> very good information about preconception visits. And I know we touched a little bit on the genetic screening tests. So that was the next question is these genetic screening tests and like, what exactly are they? And, you know, during pregnancy when we get them and generally they are, correct me if I'm wrong, but in that first trimester, sometime you get a genetic screening test. Um, so tell me what are like the pros and the cons, how invasive is it? Is it just a blood test or you have to do, you know, is there other steps you have to do? And like, what exactly does, do these tests kind of tell you during pregnancy? Yeah. So, um, you, you get pregnant, you're very excited. You can be offered those carrier screening tests at a first prenatal care visit too. Um, but again, those are things, those carrier screening tests. And then when we talk about genetic screening in pregnancy, we can be more specific and say we're screening for something called aneuploidy, which means abnormal chromosomes. So I think it's important to say, what are we going to screen for? And we used to not just to go, I think it's easier to understand when we talk about kind of the historical, um, context. So we used to not have any way to screen for what is called aneuploidy or chromosomal problems. The most common one in this class is going to be Down syndrome, which is also known as trisomy 21, three copies of the 21st chromosome. Okay. Um, but also number 13 and number 18 can be tripled as well. Um, but just with simplicity sake, that's what we're screening for. So we're not screening for, you know, if your child has a, a different type of genetic defect here um, that may be within a gene, we're screening for a chromosome number. And the reason that we care about this is because as, as age goes up, the, the likelihood of having a aneuploidy, a chromosomal aneuploidy goes up for, for women. It can happen to any woman, but I just think it's helpful to kind of review numbers. So for a 20 year old woman, the risk of having a baby with down syndrome. So trisomy 21 is one in 1,480. And the risk of any type of the chromosome abnormalities is one in 500. So very, very low risk, very, very far less than 1%. But if you jump from age 20, then to age 35, um, the risk of Down syndrome is one in 300. So still much less than 1%, but a lot higher. Mm -hmm. And then one in 178. So, you know, we, it's helpful to know many women might find it helpful to know if their baby has Down syndrome. So as our technology got better in a few different ways, and as we learned more about how Down syndrome may present in pregnancy, we developed genetic screening testing. So it's offered to everyone. Anyone can either accept genetic screening or decline it. When women ask about like, well, how, how should I decide what's right for me? I say, there's kind of two ways to look at it. One is that if a positive result would change your management of the pregnancy, that's a reason to get it. Mm -hmm. If a positive result will help you prepare and be connected with resources in your community for a child with special needs, Mm -hmm. you should get it. If you get it and it is positive, but you feel like you'd rather have not known and um, kind of 
not increased stress during pregnancy and then dealt with any issues that arose later on Mm -hmm. um, after birth, that's fine too. You don't have to get it. So that's how I kind of approach things. And I would say it depends on the population, which patients accept it and not, but overall, I would say probably 80% of my patients will get genetic screening tests. They'd rather be prepared and know. Um, So there's a few different types. So the type that is probably Um, the most common is what's called first trimester screening. So you can get it during the first trimester. Um, And that the first trimester screening test is the combination of an ultrasound and a blood test. So the ultrasound is looking at the baby's, um, the nuchal translucency, which is the size of the neck fold. And then it's looking at hormones in the blood that all goes into an algorithm and it comes up low risk or high risk. So if the test is positive, it doesn't mean your baby has Down syndrome. This is only a screening test and you can be referred for diagnostic testing, but um, that's how the screening test works. It's both the ultrasound and the blood test. Now, if you miss the first trimester test, you can also get tests in the second trimester that are just hormone screens. Those are referred to as quad screens if they test for hormones Um, PENTA screens, if it tests five hormones, there's a few different types that can get very detailed. Mm -hmm. Um, But the most common in the first trimester that's offered to everyone is that first trimester screen. And sometimes we add to the first trimester screen by drawing more blood in the second trimester. Mm -hmm. Um, But that, that is the most common screen. It is offered to everyone. But now we have what a different type of genetic screening test that looks at something completely different. So instead of looking at the ultrasound or hormones in the blood, cell-free DNA testing tests the baby's DNA that's not contained in a cell, so without the cell, but actual DNA from your baby is present in the maternal bloodstream as early as 10 weeks of gestation which is amazing to even think about in itself. Yeah. And then it's amazing to think about how we can then look at it. Mm-hmm. Wow. And if you know what this test is really right. um, known for, which is finding out fetal gender. gender. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, the fetus actually at, you know, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, whatever, probably up until about 15, 16 weeks, doesn't actually have any physical genital organs yet, right. but the DNA can tell us if there's a Y chromosome with a boy or no yeah. Y chromosome for a girl. <laughs> Yeah. And that is something that, yeah, people, people will get those genetic screens just to find out the gender. Absolutely. And there's nothing wrong with that. I know, no, no. but I'm like, it's fun. Yeah. Um, but what we run into is because initially, um, that test was tested in women who are at higher risk of having a genetic abnormality. So women over age 35, initially insurance was only covering it in that population. Okay. Um, And then, you know, due to statistics and how common the actual genetic problems are, they're less common in younger women. The test is a little bit less accurate if you're younger. So initially insurance wasn't covering it, but the companies often offer discounts for women Mm -hmm. um, if they go directly to the companies. So we're seeing more and more women who are even low risk getting it. And honestly, we're seeing more insurance cover it for younger women. So sometimes it's just worth an ask. That's good. Yeah. And it's, I think it just depends on your insurance company and your location, you know, some some will cover it, some won't. And, and yeah, no, that's great to know. So let's get into this next question as we're, as we're getting further, further along into our pregnancy. So this next one is, um, about high risk pregnancies and, you know, why exactly you do NSTs? What kind of comes with a high risk pregnancy? What, what labels you a high risk pregnancy? Let's say, you know, I just find out I'm pregnant. Am I 
do I, are there certain things that would label me as a high risk pregnancy initially, or does it go, you know, on that sort of thing? Absolutely. And the big answer to that is there's no black and white definition of high risk pregnancy. Right. Um, Some pregnancies, if they're not, you know, with any little complication, maybe it's high risk, but it's still something that your OBGYN feels completely comfortable managing themselves. It's extremely common. It's very straightforward. Mm -hmm. There are other things that are called high risk that definitely are quote unquote, higher risk require maybe a specialist who's called an MFM doctor of maternal fetal medicine, mm-hmm. um, uh, to watch. It may require you to be in the hospital. It may require extra testing that somebody else with their lower high risk condition didn't need. Um, so right. there's no black and white definition. So some people say I'm high risk and they mean like twins, but a right. normal, and you have a beautiful graphic on your Instagram of the different types of twins. <laughs> Oh, thanks. <laughs> twins, the deep, the die, die. You could say that's high risk because there is, you know, a higher chance of early yeah. labor and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Need for C-section, that kind of thing. But generally a, an OBGYN themselves would feel comfortable managing without a specialist. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, as opposed to another type of twin called a Momo, where the babies are kind of in one pool, I like to say playing together, mm-hmm. those risks go even higher. So a uh, a specialist would be involved with managing those. So within twins, there's like high risk, but not really high risk. And then high risk, that's definitely high risk. And I think that goes for so many different things too. Like just, I mean, there's so many complications, so many things that can go on in pregnancy. Um, But yeah, I mean, there's like, we have a high risk, quote unquote, high risk clinic that, you know, will patients will come from. And some of them are because they've had two preterm preterm delivery, you know, really right. micro preemies and their pregnancy is truly, truly high risk. And then some it's like gestational diabetes and their, you know, their sugars are perfect, but they just kind of get labeled high risk because of, of that. So yeah, it's, that's great that you explained it, that it's like not black and white because there's, it's such a gray area. And I'm surprised too. We always have to be so, so careful the way we explain things to patients, how many women will say, well, I was told I'm high risk because of right. X or Y. And, um, I would agree that like, oh, that's, you know, maybe a complication, but it's not something that requires a bunch of extra testing or many extra visits. And I'll be kind of clear, like what that means, like this would require this one extra test and not a series of extra tests or that kind of thing. Right. And I'm sure this question is also asking like what other kind of things you do during a high risk pregnancy to, to monitor high risk pregnancy besides NSTs. And we'll talk about NSTs in a second, but I'm sure I mean, gosh, we should probably pick one sort of high risk pregnancy, like having a previous preterm birth, because there's yes. probably, there's so many things that you do differently. Like if you have preeclampsia, you do this, or right. if you have preterm delivery, why don't we do that? Well, let's talk about, let's talk about, pre, you know, let's say you have preterm history of preterm delivery. What are the, what are the sort of things that you would do if you obviously high risk, if you have, you know, a previous preterm birth? What are the sort of things that you would do during a high risk, uh, high risk pregnancy? Yeah, the most, the absolutely most important thing when I, when I see someone who had a baby before 37 weeks is assess what happened in that situation, Mm -hmm. um, because there can be so many different causes. The person who had, you know, oh, I just went into labor at 36 weeks and six days Mm -hmm. is going to be completely different than the person who said I was at home at 22 weeks and my water broke. Right. Um, 
Um, or that also will be different than the person who said, oh, I was 34 weeks and I was doing fine, but my preeclampsia was so severe that the baby had to be delivered. So definitely the very first step is figuring out why the baby was born early. And then looking back and saying, what can we do to prevent that this time? What can we do to try to make your pregnancy last all the way till term this time? Because that's our ultimate goal. And depending on the cause, there are some different strategies, some, you know, for for labor or birth that happened too early. There are strategies like using progesterone as a medication Mm -hmm. um, for a cervix that was not holding up and not holding the pregnancy in well, even though there weren't that weren't really contractions. There's things like a cerclage, which is a stitch that can hold the cervix closed better that can be done early. Mm -hmm. Or for things like the preeclampsia, even like taking a baby aspirin in the next pregnancy may help lower the risk of preeclampsia. So identifying the why and then assessing for the different treatments. And some of those treatments, your regular OBGYN may be say, oh, this is the run of the mill for me. I know that this is the treatment. And for other types of treatments, they may refer to a specialist. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so one of the things that we'll talk about this now is that they do very frequently during a high-risk pregnancy, regardless of what kind of high-risk pregnancy you have, are NSTs. And that's a non-stress test where we're just monitoring baby. So can you talk about, Marta, why exactly we do these during pregnancy? When is the appropriate time to do one? How often? All of that good stuff. What does it show? All of that. Yeah. So a non an NST is a non-stress test. So basically it means without the uterus stressing the baby out, which basically means by a contraction, Mm -hmm. um, because there's something different called a contraction stress test. But a non-stress test is just monitoring the baby's heart rate for 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And as um, many listeners are familiar with, or if you're not, you will be familiar with by the time you're in labor, um, the baby's heart rate looks like a squiggly line. Mm -hmm. And it's good for the line to be somewhat squiggly, not flat. And it's good for there to be mountains um, and not so great for there to be valleys. Mm-hmm. Um, however, there can be valley, valleys that are okay ones to have too. Um, and so a non-stress test is done to, if the baby has a squiggly line that has mountains, they're called accelerations, that's very reassuring that the baby is getting everything it needs from the placenta. Mm-hmm. The reason to do non-stress tests is that the disorder either that the mother has or the issue that the fetus has, um, for example, maternal uh, diabetes, um, especially, or not not gestational diabetes, but pre-existing diabetes, like a type one diabetic or a type two diabetic who had diabetes before pregnancy, mm-hmm. or from the baby side, maybe the baby is too small mm-hmm. um, and we're monitoring closely. The the reason for doing the non-stress test is because whatever the disorder is or the reason may somewhat increase the rate of stillbirth, mm-hmm. which is a horrible outcome that we take every measure to try to avoid. And even if the increased risk is still very small, monitoring with a simple non-invasive 20-minute heart rate test is a pretty reasonable way to say, well, if we're showing any signs that the baby is in distress, we'll be able to monitor more closely, intervene, and make sure we don't need to deliver early so that the baby can not having to rely on the placenta um, for growth. So really the goal of doing non-stress tests um, in terms of a monitoring strategy is to decrease the risk of stillbirth. However, they're used for a lot of other things too. You know, sometimes I have 
you know, a mom who has a certain complaint in the office. And even though the strategy is not going to be for, oh, you're going to get non-stress tests for the rest of your pregnancy third trimester, occasionally there's an indication to do it once or twice, et cetera. Um, usually when, you know, like I said, pre-existing maternal diabetes, another example is a, a mom who has lupus mm-hmm. um, prior to pregnancy, usually we'll start them in the third trimester. And you can kind of talk with your provider about starting at the beginning of the third trimester versus the middle of the third trimester, like 32 weeks. I would say those are two common types times to start 28 weeks and 32 weeks. And that's a little bit individualized based on the patient and her baby and their situation. Right. Good. Awesome. Good info. And I think the same reasoning by, uh, you know, decreasing stillbirth is the same reason why we do them. Let's say, you know, you go past your due date. They usually say, they usually say, Hey, why don't we come in and do a few NSTs? It's, this is the reason we want to make sure that baby's doing okay in there. Yeah, exactly. And you know, usually we do that past 41 weeks mm-hmm. um, or that's what's recommended is to do some testing beyond 41 weeks to assure that that placenta isn't, hasn't given up already on the baby. Right. Because it often, it often does. <laughs> Placentas aren't good forever. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, let's go into the next question. This next one is about induction. So we're progressing through our pregnancy. And now we've gotten to, um, to birth and let's talk about inductions. Cause I know this is a really lately, it's been a very, very hot topic. People are very concerned about getting induced and the pros and the cons. And should I get induced? Should I not get induced? What, you know, blah, blah, blah. I always have these questions about induction. So give me your, give me your best answer on inductions. When pe- when somebody comes to your office and says, Hey, I think I want to be induced or, Hey, I don't know if I want to be induced. What's your best advice about inductions? What are, what are the pros? What are the cons? Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I like to separate out two different things. One is an elective induction, meaning it's a choice I get to make whether I want the induction or not, or a medically necessary induction. Because, you know, I think that based on the data I'll talk about, we know that when we recommend a medically indicated induction, it's going to be what's best and safest for you and your baby. Otherwise, we wouldn't recommend it. Right. You know, continuing pregnancy or going straight to a C-section is less favorable. The best thing is to try for a vaginal delivery because either your body needs it or your baby needs it. But with elective induction, I agree, it's been such a hot topic. So I think there are some pros and cons. So when can you have an elective induction? You can decide to have an elective induction anytime from 39 weeks and zero days on. Um, and why would someone want an elective induction? What are the pro cons? So there's a few different reasons. Some women have, you know, severe back pain, severe pubic, um, symphyseal pain during pregnancy. They're so uncomfortable. Their baby hasn't come yet 39 weeks. And they say, I, I need to deliver my baby. Yeah. That's the reason I have another Jacksonville's a, um, major military town. Mm. Um, we have a big naval base here. So sometimes we have partners who are like only in town for like a week. Yeah. So being able to schedule the birth of the child is like, I mean, so amazing for that family compared to like having to wait and the partner misses it. I mean, that's just tragic. So yeah. Um, things like that are super important too. Um, and so some of the pro cons we'll get to about, about why it's a hot topic is that we use, the pro would then be scheduling. So being able to choose your time when you're ending the pregnancy for whatever that reason is. Mm-hmm. Um, and a con has those, some of that information about cons or how people approach that has changed. So as you're bringing up a big, um, prior thought about inductions is they'll raise the C-section rate because they take so long. Mm -hmm. So when you go into labor on your own, usually when you come into the hospital, 
everything, you're already on a train going full speed versus if we have an induction, we have to like, you know, light everything up, get on the train, get the whatever, right. I guess it's an old choo-choo train, get the coal burning before the right. steam can be made that the steam powers it. Um, Good so analogy. <laughs> it's exactly right. And, you know, we used to, I say we, I was not even an OBGYN yet. <laughs> um, the com- doctor community, OBGYN community, used to think what's called active labor or the time when labor should go quickly picked up at four centimeters. And, you know, about a decade ago, that all changed. And it's really six centimeters that mm-hmm. that happens. And ACOG, which is our big community of OBGYN said, look, everybody, basically, I can go into like the specific details, but they basically said, everyone needs to have more patience with labor before mm-hmm. they say that labor isn't working. And the train's not at full speed. So something's wrong, you need a C-section. No, you all need to be more patient. And so there's very strict criteria. And we have a lot more patience. After we had a lot more patients, a lot of people were starting to be like, well, does an induction increase the C-section rate? If we have the patients and it takes a long time, but it still results in vaginal delivery, maybe it's not so bad. So someone did a huge trial called the ARRIVE trial that came out about what, two years ago now, two to three years ago. At my hospital, par- partially. <laughs> yeah, I did um, my hospital with the labor down study. So <laughs> too, but, um, the ARRIVE trial. So the other thing that used to happen too is when people did studies on it, on an if induction raised the C-section rate, they would take a woman who was 39 weeks who was having the induction and compare her to the woman who walked into the hospital already in active labor at 39 weeks. And that's not the right comparison because if you were already in labor at 39 weeks, you wouldn't even be starting your induction. Right. Um, the way to compare it, which the ARRIVE trial did, was between women who were having induction at 39 weeks and then the other women had what's called expectant management. Basically, they could have gone into labor at 39 weeks in one day or at 41 weeks and five days, or they could have gotten preeclampsia at 39 weeks and five days and needed an induction anyway then. Mm-hmm. So it just watched what happened with the rest of the crew for any reason. Um, even if they ended up needing induction for any reason, including electing it, they could do that. So, um, and what that showed was actually a decrease in the C-section rate for the elective induction at 39 week group. Mm-hmm. Um, And that was, I think, a big surprise to a lot of providers, or maybe not so much as a surprise to a lot of providers, too. I mean, certainly where I had been trained, the thought had been uh, inductions probably do not increase the C-section rate um, because the studies aren't very good, but there's a big trial that's happening. Um, So it didn't come as a super big surprise in the culture where I had trained in. But I think for some people, it was a a big surprise. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was for us. I mean, and I think just in the groups that I'm in, on like labor and delivery nurse groups, like we were all like, what? Like, that's crazy that it's actually saying it decreases. You know, we thought it would just be, oh, it, it you know, it's inconclusive or whatever. Right, right. What What's important is that there weren't any, you know, super, and I have to refer back to exactly the study, but the composite outcome for baby's well-being um, mm-hmm. was not how, how will your baby do and how will you do? And they wanted to know right. C-section rates too. But the important part is because it shocked us all with like, well, the C-section rate was lower. Yeah. That, like Babies did fine though. But I mean, it's a salient outcome for moms about C-sections. So anyways, you know, that's all the details. But the going back to just the pro-cons, pros are being able to schedule um, and possibly a decreased risk of C-section. But the cons are you are in the hospital for a long time in labor. This is not a... Oh, my mom, my mom's labor took forever. She said it took 12 hours. Okay. Well, for a lot of women, 
not all women, sometimes an induction takes four hours, you know, but sometimes right. an induction is going to take 36 hours, 48 yeah. hours, depending on what your cervix is. Oh yeah. So you're, it's a much different experience. And you also, the big con that I see that I think, um, a lot of women, um, have a focus on is you do lose the, the romantic, um, uh, idea and the situation of the, I'm going into labor. I'm at home. I'm counting my contractions with my partner. Mm-hmm. We decide when to go to the hospital. We get in. Um, and of course the length of time and the difference between going into labor naturally and having induction will probably impact the pain control. Right. Um, preferred method. And that depends so much on your cervix. Like, like I said, someone who's having an induction at four centimeters may not take that much longer than someone who is in labor versus someone whose cervix is closed will take a long time. And a uh, long yeah, time I, I think that I know, I know, I think that makes such a difference. And that's something that I talk about in my class too, is that it is such a different experience having an induction when your cervix is close, thick, and high than having an induction when your cervix is like three centimeters and 80% of vase or something. Like it's such, you know, that's just what I've seen at least is that like getting somebody into labor is so much easier with Pitocin when your cervix is like prepped like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's So it's hard to speak like totally generally, but like- right when I'm kind of reviewing what are the pros cons, but I often, the other really important thing too, is that when someone asks about induction in the office, my first question is before I even start answering, I ask back to them, can I ask why you're asking? Because some people are asking like, what are the pros of an induction? Because, you know, my husband comes back from the Middle East for one week and I really want one. So will you help me decide if that's going to fit for us? Right. Versus the person who's like, I absolutely want to avoid an induction at all costs, but I want to know what that would be like. Right. And so the way I'm going to approach things is totally different for those two people. That's a good point. So if somebody comes in and is like, Hey, my husband is only here for three days. Like, but I, I don't, I really don't know what are the pros and cons. It's, yeah. You're, you're going to be like, Hey, like it's a, it's a much bigger pro to have like your partner here during your labor. Usually, you know, for most people they, they feel that way. So that's, that's a good point to add about that. And that person's going to be less focused on the, probably the amount of time it would take just as long as their partner was right. there versus the person who it's really important to them that they arrive to the hospital with a you know, higher cervical dilation and they don't use any medication for pain control. Like, you know, those things are going to be on that person's prior. Those person's priorities are totally different. This week was sponsored by Mommy Knows Best. If you guys know me, you know, I love Mommy Knows Best and I love doing stuff with them. They have delicious lactation cookies that I currently have scattered all over my office and I eat way too many of them. (laughs) Mommy Knows Best empowers all moms with the tools and resources necessary to give your newborn the best start in life. From an assortment of delicious lactation cookies to supplements and beyond, their products contain all natural herbal remedies traditionally and effectively used for generations to treat low milk supply. Whether you're a new mom or a pro, Mommy Knows Best gives you plenty of options, all of which are created with the health and safety of both baby and mom in mind. Plus, I'm really excited to tell you that they just added a new gluten and dairy-free lactation cookie mix a couple weeks ago. I personally baked these in my oven and they were delicious. I don't do dairy or gluten-free, and I seriously could not tell that there was anything special about these cookies. They just tasted like delicious, freshly baked cookies. 
If you're interested in any of Mommy Knows Best products, use the code LABORNURSE10, that's L-A-B-O-R-N-U-R-S-E 10, to get 10% off all Mommy Knows Best products, valid on Amazon or at my link, mommylabornurse.com slash cookies. Okay, well, let's get into the next question. This one's kind of outside of pregnancy. I'd, we just, I just want to ask you how exactly OBGYNs are trained, what kind of training you go through, and what kind, really what kind of places do you all work in? So I think a lot of people don't realize this is like not everybody that is an OBGYN works at an OBGYN office and delivers babies. Some of them go into different specialties. So how do... Well, let's get that. Well, I know you talked about it a little bit in your intro where you kind of went to school and all of that good stuff. But yeah, talk to me how how you guys are trained. Yeah. So I think you work at a a highly academic uh, tertiary care center, right? Right. Yeah. 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 Um, So I, um, OBGYN doctors, so first of all, um, there are different types of birth providers. Some are OBGYN doctors. You can have an MD, um, which is the type of medical school degree, or a DO, so a medical doctor or a doctor of osteopathy. They're both physicians. They both get, you know, board certified in their ways. There's, you know, I like to um, de-emphasize the differences because I think they're both excellent clinicians. Um, And then there is um, also in a hospital or clinic setting or office setting, triage setting, um, uh, certified nurse midwives, which are basically, Mm -hmm. I like to say like nurse practitioners of birth and delivery Mm -hmm. and obstetrics. Exactly. Um, And then there'll be like, we have our um, nurse practitioners who are not certified nurse midwives, but they help us see prenatal care visit in the office and they'll help round on postpartum patients. So you're going to see a lot of different providers. And then there are other types of midwives that don't have formal medical training, um, which kind of is outside the scope of this conversation, but I am an MD. Um, So after four years of medical school, um, where I, where you both do classroom learning and then rotations, um, obstetrics and gynecology residency is four years. Mm-hmm. And everyone who does that is going to learn about the full breadth of women's obstetric and gynecologic care. So everything from seeing, you know, patients in the office for either well visits or mm-hmm. complaints, um, seeing women after menopause who have a lot of problems with urinary leakage, taking care of and doing surgery on women who have advanced ovarian cancer and dealing with chemotherapy complications, um, taking care of both low risk and high risk pregnancies, both in the office and on labor and delivery, doing lots of surgery as well as lots of outpatient management and in hospital care. And usually we'll have experience in residency in the ICU too. So, you know, one of my on my ICU rotations, one of my patients, a lot of the patients I took care of were like men with liver cancer. Well, how is that applicable? Well, you know, taking care of critically ill patients um, is really important. And so there's going to be overlap. You can't just go in the ICU and say, I'm only going to care for women. Um, And then some rotations have emergency department rotations as well. So Mm -hmm. seeing people who are just coming in in a more urgent fashion. And as an OBGYN, there's a lot of emergencies that happen. So I'm in the ER all the time as an OBGYN. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's four years of that. And as you go on, you learn the more simple things and then the more advanced and you have a lot of independence kind of your last year. And as we mentioned, I went to a very academic place, which means I had all of those specialties right, you know, next to me, um, Mm -hmm. in terms of oncologists and this and that some, some OBGYN residency programs are at more community hospitals, meaning uh, an oncologist might work at a different office or a different hospital and you go to work with them and they're not more part of kind of your daily experience or something like that. There's a few different training environments that have some emphasis, but there are all basic 
competencies that every OBGYN resident has to accomplish to complete a residency. So there is a standardization there as well. Gotcha. And, gotcha. Um, after that, um, all medical doctors have to get um, medical license, no matter what kind they are. But then if you're an OBGYN or if you're a different kind of doctor, you have to do your specialty specific board. So for OBGYN, it has two parts. One is a standardized test you take at the completion of residency. So for me, that was about a year and a few months ago. And then you have to take what we call oral board. So if you follow me on Instagram, um, you'll see I'm whining about this, <laughs> mentioning it quite a bit. Also some other OBGYNs that are on, um, Instagram as well, like Mama Dr. Jones. I was just going to bring her up. Yeah, she's about to take hers too. (laughs) She takes hers next week. I don't know when this will come out, but good luck, Danielle. I know you'll be amazing. Uh, (laughs) Mine is in January. We get assigned the date. We don't pick them. Oh, Um, interesting. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're assigned. Actually, (laughs) I um, it takes over a year of collecting your um, collecting patients and cases that you have to write Mm -hmm. up and submit before you can take the exam. So it's not like most people take it within probably their first three to four years of practice. I'm taking it the first year. Mm-hmm. If you've had a child, you may take it the year after or mm-hmm. other things. So um, myself and Danielle, we're general OBGYNs and I work in a more traditional sense. And I'll talk about that in a second, but a lot of people choose not to be general OBGYNs and choose to do a specialty training. So the specialties for OBGYN are maternal fetal medicine, which we've mentioned, high risk mm-hmm. obstetric patients, only pregnant patients. You're not seeing someone for, you know, heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, then there's reproductive endocrinology and infertility, which are fertility specialists. They do fertility treatments and IVF and plenty of other things besides that. They're great. Um, there is gynecologic oncology, which I mentioned, which they take care of women who have cervical cancer, uterine cancer, or ovarian cancer. Um, and then there's Something it used to be called and is still referred to as urogynecology, but it's yeah. you know, called female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. And what's interesting about that one is that you can do it after um, being an OBGYN resident or a urology training. So it's a focus on women who have problems with either prolapse or urinary um, problems. Gotcha. Um, and then you can do minimally invasive gyne surgery where you do extra training in a minimally invasive techniques for doing hysterectomies and other types of procedures. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. Um, so and main specialties that you can do. And, you know, some of my colleagues decided to specialize. I really love everything. Yeah. Um, and there are a few other um, specialties that are like a little bit less common. Um, one of those is um, pediatric and adolescent gynecology, ah. um, which uh, the period doctor who's on Instagram too, she's in that training. Oh, I don't um, think I follow her. I'm going to have to follow her. Yeah. She's at Houston for that training, which is a great oh, program. Cool. I really love, um, I consider that fellowship actually. Um, and then family planning specialization, which is advanced training in contraceptive for complicated patients and pregnancy termination. So those gotcha. are, and that's very public health heavy too. So right. there's a bunch of different things you can do. And then even just being a general OBGYN, then you can do other things like, uh, Dr. Jennifer Lincoln, she is an OB hospitalist, meaning she, mm-hmm. Unlike me, she has general OBGYN training like me, but unlike me, she's actually kind of taken herself out of the office and specializes in taking care of women in the hospital during their pregnancy, birth, and postpartum. Right. Um, And so she specializes in those things, even though it wasn't a formal um, fellowship, um, that's what she does. And other people do the opposite of her. They no longer take care of pregnant patients, but only do kind of contraception, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good to point out too, because, um, I think 
if you're, you know, if you're going to the hospital to deliver your baby, like there's just for example, like there's hospitals around here where like the hospital that I worked at, we don't have hospitalists. We just have practices and providers um, Mm -hmm. who are, you know, in practice and they see their patients during their prenatal care. And then they come, you know, and they round and they see their patients when they deliver, but a hospital that's still within the same system, um, has hospitalists. I mean, they have practices as well, but they have, but they staff hospitalists and they work, you know, 20, I think two, 24 hours. I, I don't know how they do staffing, but yeah, it's good to bring up though, too, because like those hospitalists don't, you know, you would show up and to that, at that hospital and you wouldn't see that provider during, you know, your, your prenatal care. So I think that's just something that people don't realize that like some hospitals do do that where they have just hospitals that, that they staff. I always tell patients too, it's really a part of, um, like a healthcare team, the way things are. And just like all of the many options that we have now and the different levels of care, you, uh, us doctors all, you know, work together with your nurses, your doctors, people in the hospital, out of the hospital, helping everyone run more smoothly, you know, um, and making sure that there's plenty of providers to meet the needs that people have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's also like these hospitals, I mean, let's say I'm just bringing that up because sometimes you would be out of town and, you know, you need to go to the, you, you, you're delivering on a preterm basis or something, or, you know, you need to see a doctor, like sometimes you would see a provider that you know, you wouldn't normally see during your pregnancy, but yeah, no, that's good to bring up. Um, And then let's see the last question. Let's talk about, oh, this is perfect. How to close up. How do you find a provider who you can really trust? What's your best advice on that? So this is like a topic that's so near and dear to my heart because I just like so much of my heart breaks when women tell me that they've had a negative experience with a provider. And although I think that almost every, um, women's health provider I've ever worked with truly is fantastic. And like 98%, I recognize that definitely not everyone actually is, or all women have that experience, but we're at a day and age where you can find someone who's going to treat you with respect, who's going to really hear your concerns, not feel like they're blowing you off, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, I think we're getting better and better too. Like you brought up that it's like 98%. I think it's just because people are getting trained better and more emphasis on, you know, most schools I I feel like are putting an emphasis on, on bedside manner too. Like that is such an important part of being a doctor is like having good bedside manner. And I say all the time, I mean, I'm not in academics right now, so I'm not interacting with medical students or residents, although I really would like to, um, again, in the future, I tell people all the time, it really doesn't matter how smart you are. Like you've, you've gotten over enough hurdles. There are, you're plenty smart enough. The difference between the smartest doctor and a not really smart doctor is probably not that different, but if you, it does, so it doesn't matter how smart you are. It matters how you treat and relate to your patients and how you communicate Mm -hmm. what your patient's concerns are and what they need and your, your ideal treatment plan for them or whatever is what really matters. Exactly. You're so blunt and don't listen to their concerns and just say, this is a medication or this is a surgery or that doesn't matter. That person is not going to feel empowered in their health at all. No. Even if you told them the right thing. Right. Um, 
not that it doesn't matter fully how smart you are, but the communication matters so much more. So I always tell women the very um, best thing to do is to ask friends or colleagues, though mm-hmm. your friend, your coworker, whatever, who just had a baby or just got their new IUD or whatever, they're going to be pretty honest. Like, Oh, I really liked the person I went to or like, Oh, they were fine. Like, and maybe you ask someone else and you ask around till you get that. Oh, I really liked that person. Um, something that, you know, in this day and age, a lot of people are online and give reviews online. I caution about online reviews and that's because online reviews are often not fully related to the provider themselves. Yeah. So a lot of times when I, and positive online reviews probably are related to the provider, but most of what you see in practices and stuff are, are negative reviews. And a lot of times one, they're related to, um, wait times in the office, which a lot of people are surprised to learn that doctors and nurse practitioners, we don't set our own schedule. It's often set by someone for us. Right. Um, so we may be running behind also in my job, especially sometimes I get behind because I had a really tough conversation with somebody who just had a miscarriage and they needed me for a lot more than 10 minutes. And I'm going to sit there and provide that for them and not rush them out the door. Mm -hmm. And so especially people, sometimes I say, you know, in an ideal world, you would have someone who had all the time to communicate they can without getting behind. But mm-hmm. in reality, that's usually not just realistic, just because you don't really know what the day is going to throw at you. Um, so wait times can be difficult. A lot of pe- people, if you ask them, would you rather like know that your appointment is going to be an hour late and love your doctor or go on time and hate your experience? People probably rather wait. They just kind of want to know in advance. You would think, um, yes, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so th- that's a cautious thing about wait times in terms of online review. And then the other thing I see a lot in online review is complaints about like, oh, well, I got a, I had to pay this much or I got a bill. Mm-hmm. And the way that medical insurance works is very confusing for people. Um, so no matter who I'm seeing or what I, I have, I document what service I provided. And then like your insurance company the plan you signed up for dictates how much you pay. So I'm charging mm. the same and the plan that you signed up for decides how much you pay, not me. I don't like make different cost assignments for different people or different reasons. There's, it's pretty standardized. What I did is captured by like a code. And then um, some people sign up for a plan. It's really common to have a high deductible plan now. So you like go in and you're, you pay a lot of a big bill for any medical care you have that year until you reach it, you know? Um, some people have something like that's lower. And sometimes my office says, oh, this is what Dr. Prez did for you. This is what it costs. And the insurance company pays us less than we expected. And so then the rest of that cost goes to the patient. But that's, again, because of the insurance company, not because of like... It's not the doctor's office. office. Yeah. yeah and, and insurance companies are hard to work with. They're confusing. There's long wait times. I know that our office staff is often on the phone with them for hours on end. So I see that misplaced frustration on it. Uh, like a doctor's office when it should be with the insurance company. So that's what my caution about online reviews. So I think friends are a great place to ask. Mm-hmm. I also think it's not weird. I mean, some people might think it's weird. So like you see a woman with a young new a baby, young baby say, hey, I just moved to this area. I don't really know anyone. I'm planning a family soon. Can I ask you about like your birth experience and um, and give me some tips around, about this area and, you know, having a baby in this area? I bet and, you can do that at Target too. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know. We're such a like, um, there's a lot of mom's groups on Facebook and yeah. like, I don't think that stuff is weird. And I encourage women to like ask and be, and be empowered to ask. I think really women are happy to share that kind of information. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I think uh, you brought up a good point about the online re- reviews too, because I always tell people like, 
online reviews are, are fine. I mean, I mean, it's, I think everybody kind of do, does that at fault when they look up, you know, Hey, I'm going to go get a massage. I'm going to look at the on, you know, online reviews, like how I think everybody kind of does that. But I love telling people about like just mom groups, like Facebook, you know, like city mom groups, because I can't tell you, there are so many threads that are like, Hey, um, you know, I just moved here. What's a good OBGYN. And people are like, Oh, this practice, this practice, this practice. And I mean, it's so like people, those, those things are hot. (laughs) And I think that's, you know, that's where you get the positivity too. Like those Google reviews, you know, the Yelp or whatever, like, yeah, gosh, there are so many negative, negative reviews. And it's like, ugh. <laughs> it's also funny because, you know, we kind of talked about like what a bad provider might do, brush off, blah, blah, blah. But yeah. man, when you talk to moms about their experience with pregnancy and birth, so many more of them are going to say, oh my goodness, I did love my provider. Yeah. Experience. And now that I'm postpartum, I miss my provider. I mean, I miss my patients when I see them all the time. And then we don't, you know, they have like a two-year-old now and they come in once a year. I'm like, oh man, come back. Get I know. You're so right. I was just thinking about that. I mean, I work with the providers who I see, but I was just thinking about that the other day. I was like, I just kind of want to make an appointment just to go see my doctor. I know. <laughs> I had yeah. up with somebody the other day. I said, so are you ready for another one? Because I miss you. <laughs> yeah. I know. I know. Well, that's awesome. Well, that is great advice um, on finding a provider because I think that is so important just just talking to people and finding a provider who you can trust and, you know, who you have good recommendations for. The other well, nice thing you can do at a preconception visit to even like bring it back to yeah. the beginning in terms of finding a provider is there's so many different ways that groups practice these days. Yeah. So, you know, my group practices where you'll be my gynecology patient and only see me, or of course you could choose another provider. That's fine. Um, but when you're pregnant, we try to see you, everyone in the group tries to see you because we take turns taking call. But the other group that is kind of like, you know, works alongside us at our hospital, they do it where you might see one of their partners maybe one or two times during pregnancy, Mm -hmm. but they're stay on call for themselves Monday through Friday and sometimes on the weekends too, but sometimes they'll sign out for the weekend to a partner. Um, And so if something happened urgently, the on-call doctor was probably closer and would make it, but otherwise your doctor is really going to be there. 90% of the time and still other groups have a bigger shared call pool. And then it's sort of moving sometimes to some doctors, maybe not even going to the hospital all the time and relying on like the OB hospitalist to do things. And that may be because they have a family themselves as a doctor, or I don't know how Michael and I are going to do it, but he's going to be in the cardiac children's ICU. So I won't be able to just leave my kids at home in the middle of the night. So we'll have to either do a lot of planning or Mm -hmm. use one of those strategies. Um, So finding a provider is important, but at a preconception visit too, you can say like, well, how does this group work and how will that, um, yeah. And just interviewing them and just saying, Oh, Hey, like, I really like the, I really like this provider. I really like this practice. Or maybe you say, "Mm, I don't feel like this provider was really listening to me. Maybe, you know, maybe it's, maybe I should look, you know, into a different option. And I think that's another side note question that, um, we can, we can bring up you know, in regards to this question, what do you do if you feel like you're out of practice during any stage of your pregnancy? Like, what do you do if you feel like your provider isn't hearing, hearing you? Yeah, that's, I love that question because a really, I, there's two things. One is that whenever a patient says, I didn't feel heard by my provider, I felt brushed off. The first thing I encourage them to do, which can be hard for us as women because we're trained to be like non, not discuss our concerns. Yeah. The first thing I ask them to do is just say, I felt like you brushed me off or I don't feel like you heard my concern. Can we talk about this again? 
And I actually had a, a patient recently. I mean, I think I have pretty good bedside manner and I communicate pretty well, but we all can improve mm-hmm. in this particular yeah. situation. I had just, um, there was another situation that was literally the patient right before this patient. And I was on call with some, there was like kind of a, uh, it was just one of those days sort of mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. a patient who was actually a physician herself told me during our interaction, I didn't feel heard by you. And I didn't feel like I had your full attention. Oh. And my response immediately to her was, thank you so much for sharing that with me. Yeah. Let's talk more because I couldn't tell from her. I, I didn't know that, that she felt that way. And there were some other things that had my attention in terms of like mm-hmm. being on call and a, a different patient situation. And, but I'm so glad she brought that up because it allowed us to work through it. And what I was able to do was to, you know, I was allowed to make, I could make some moves to make sure that she had my full attention yeah. because of that. And, you know, it, and it's a great, we have a great relationship now. So sometimes just making a simple, a simple comment, a clear communication, it's not confrontational at all to yeah. say that. I, I love when my patients say something like, I didn't fully understand this, or I didn't feel like my question was actually answered when I asked it. I felt like you answered a different question, you know? Um, I, so if you feel comfortable enough, I strongly encourage just a, a comment of clarification like that, asking your doctor, because sometimes you might get, you might find that the relationship is get either strengthened or um, you feel more comfortable, more confident. So that's always what I encourage um, people to do first, if they don't feel comfortable doing that, or if there seems to be a pattern of poor communication or, mm-hmm. or even just not even poor communication, but just different strategies. Like there's, I did a series on VBAC a while back and there's a variety of, um, provider, um, kind of outlook on VBAC. Like I'm very, uh, VBAC li- liberal. Like I, of course I abide by ACOG guidelines, but yeah. two higher C-sections to me, yes. ACOG says you can VBAC that the rupture risk is the same. So I allow you to VBAC. There are providers who say no to that, mm-hmm. that they're not comfortable managing that. Um, unfortunately there are providers who don't feel comfortable managing VBAC at all, which is crazy to me, but it happens. So there's some things that may not be about the provider, but just about the situation. Um, and then a second opinion, I mean, yeah. go get yourself a second opinion, figure out how much it's, you know, your insurance may charge you. It may be nothing. There may be some other fee you find out from the office. If they offer second opinions, most offices are going to do that. Um, and see what else is out there for you. I mean, I don't want people looking back and being like, I didn't have a good experience with the, my birth because I kind of knew over the course of months, this wasn't the right practice for me, but I was a little bit too nervous to branch out, you know? So yeah. I, think, I offer second opinion. I well, offer to my patients second opinions for a lot of different things too. Um, everything from, you know, sometimes a, a patient really wants a surgical procedure that I do, but I don't feel like they're a great candidate for mm-hmm. and not really help them much or their risks are too high. And I say, this is my kind of opinion. What do, you, what do you think about getting a second opinion? I've seen patients who are second opinions and tell you what, most of the time I see a second opinion patient, I am saying the same thing that the other doctor recommended. And it's really comforting to the patient and they may stay with me or they may go back to their original provider, but I can just see kind of a sense of relief um, that they say, oh, wow. Okay. This other doctor also. That's a good point. Yeah. Or, no, or that's presented the same options or, you know, yeah. No, that's a great point about second opinions because a lot of times people think, oh, when some when somebody's going to get a second opinion, they're looking for the you know opposite answer. 
And that's not always the case. It's like, no, a lot of times when you look for a second opinion, it's just more proof that like, hey, this is actually the right thing to do. Um, So yeah, no, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. So there's a lot of kind of ways that if it's not going well to try to make it a little bit better. And, you know, like you said, unfortunately, some people geographically may not have access to a lot of different providers, but luckily most will. And so I I tell women, it's possible to find a provider you're going to get along great with. Yeah. And I mean, I think it goes without saying, if you are going through all of these steps and communicating with your provider and you really, really feel like this is not a good fit, it is okay. Even if you're 25 weeks pregnant or 26 weeks pregnant, if you know your location, if you're in a location where there's other practices and you know your insurance is okay um, with you switching practices, like it's okay to, you know, don't feel like you're stuck in the situation. If you're really at a practice that like you feel like your provider really, you've tried to communicate with them and tried to get them, you know, to understand you and you just feel like it's not a good fit. Like it is okay to change practices. Absolutely. And I I completely second that. We, you know, we have, we have patients who come into our practice late and, you know, prenatal care for a lot of people is pretty straightforward. It's not so hard to get caught up. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. Good point. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Marta. This kind of wraps up our little conversation about all of these great topics. Can you just, I know you are in the social space as I am. Can you just remind patients, you know, where they can kind of follow you on, I know you're on Instagram if you have a website or anything. So just tell people if they want to follow along. Yeah. Come follow me. I talk, I'm, I'm primarily on Instagram. It's at Dr. Marta Perez at DR period, Marta Perez, M-A-R-T-A-P-E-R-E-Z. I'm primarily on Instagram. I'm working on a website. It's not quite up yet. Um, And I talk about pregnancy, birth, but I also talk about birth control, periods, sexual health, um, and also a little bit of lifestyle. There's peaks at some wedding planning here and there, (laughs) Um, (laughs) pictures of the beach. Um, And then I told Liesl before we started recording, and this is a good time to probably make an announcement. I will be starting a YouTube channel. Um, So I'm so excited. It'll be five minute birth prep. So, you know, a little bit more fun and lighthearted than the amazingly, um, I love your birth courses, Liesl. Um, Thank you. (laughs) Just some other fun stuff because you can never know too much. Exactly. Oh, I 100% second that. (laughs) That the more resources and the more education, the better. So, well, awesome. Well, good luck with your YouTube YouTube channel. And I will absolutely link all of your stuff in the show notes. If people want to follow along and once your YouTube channel comes out, just let me know. And I'll put that down there for people to follow as well. Absolutely. Well, this has been so much fun, Liesl. Yeah. Thank you so much. Are you looking for birth education? Did you know that I have two fabulous birth courses that are super affordable? Well, I do. Head over to mommylabornurse.com slash podcast to take a short quiz to see which birth class is for you. When you purchase either birth course, you'll have full access to it forever. And that means it will never expire and you can access it throughout any stage of your pregnancy or for any subsequent pregnancies that you have. You'll also gain free access to my Facebook group, linked to the class where you can ask questions about your pregnancy, share your birth story after you give birth, read other people's birth stories, and get to know other members who are in the course. There is also a money-back guarantee, so if you are at all unsatisfied with your purchase, please, please send me an email at hello at mommylaborers.com for a full refund. There's really no risk to signing up, and I promise you will learn a ton about what's to come when you give birth. 
as a listener of this podcast, you automatically get 20% off any purchase if you use the code PODCASTLISTENER. I've had tons of moms just like you enter these birth courses and have fabulous, wonderful, empowering births because they feel so much more educated about what's to happen. So if you are at all curious about birth education, again, I encourage you to go to mommylabornurse.com slash podcast and use the code podcast listener to save 20%. All right, so that is it for this episode of the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast. You probably follow me on Instagram because that's probably where you came from. But if you don't, head over to Instagram and follow me at mommy.labornurse for more. That is certainly where I am most active. I also now have a separate Instagram for just this podcast, so I encourage you to follow my second account at mommylabornurse.podcast as well if you want podcast updates. Again, that is at mommylabornurse.podcast. As always, you guys know that I also have a website where I have tons of articles all about pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding, newborn stuff, and more at www.mommylabornurse.com. I want to hear more from you on how much you love this episode of the podcast or how you think I can improve. So leave me a comment on one of my pictures, send me a DM, or send me an email with all the love. All right, guys, I will see you same time, same place next week.